This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. To spread grace, speak truth, restart, this is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom, the kingdom, yes it is, gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, this we took about what two weeks off or so. Uh, this is our, our our first week. This is our first podcast since Christmas. Um, maybe second in December, something like that. I don't know. You get the point. But I just want to start with a little bit of vulnerability. I want to start with a little bit of a confession. Uh, as you know, I was in Chicago during the holiday or during Christmas for about a week and a half. And man, I gained about, we'll just say over five pounds while I was there. Um, I think Chicago, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all about Atlanta, but I think Chicago does have the best food in the, in the country. Um, and every time I go there, I can't help but, you know, Going to Portillo's, shout out to Lim's Barbecue, shout out to, um, I mean, it, the list just goes on and on. Harold's Chicken, I mean, the, like I said, the, the list, we can just we can just keep keep going on with the list. So I'm a, I'm a little, you know, I'm, I need to get myself together, uh, need to get a good workout in tomorrow. Did you have any of those issues during the holiday, Chris? Man, I have had those issues, uh, certainly at the holiday, but I have... Uh, I pledge myself at uh, the turn of the year that I'm getting back up on the the wagon. So yeah, because I I, I'm, I can't get my uh, custom suit on good, and I don't I don't like that. Yeah, I mean I, I pride myself on working out, on um, you know just trying to stay in shape. But this holiday got the best of me, man. And so anybody out there that that had that struggle, man, I'm with you. We got to get it right. Um, it happens to the best of us, man. But we we do need to avoid it, man. Uh, as y'all know, man, we got to pray for me because I am. Uh, I've never been one who's uh, uh, styled myself on physical exploits. <laughs> so, but I got to get it together. Well, let me tell you this, man. It's all even though I fell off the wagon, I've 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 been on the wagon for a long time. It's all about a routine. So if you can find a routine that you stick to, find your motivation, stick to your routine. Uh, any of you, and that's for everybody. Any of you can get it done. And the new year is always a good time to start. So I know a lot of people make New Year's resolutions and some of them end very quickly. But it is kind of a fresh start and it is time to get, you know, new habits and again, get into new routines. So I, I would I would try it out. Find, you know, the type of workout that you can get done. It doesn't take you don't have to work out for all that long. It's really just about being committed and consistent uh, and getting it done, man. So hey, if, if you need a, a accountability partner. Uh, maybe we can we can do that together, man. Because I, I gotta get, I gotta get it together myself. Hey, that's not so, a bad idea. 
Yeah, shout out to anybody else that might be with us on that, man. We're going to get right for uh, 2023. Uh, We have a lot of good stuff to get into today. I think we have some interesting conversations. Before we get into that, though, as always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Also, shout out to all you folks who are on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash churchpolitics that check us out. Obviously, you guys get extra content and all that, but some of y'all were just given before the extra content was even there. So thank you for that. After this uh, uh, episode, we will be on Patreon to talk about uh, what does it mean to be prophetic in the public square? So if you want to hear that conversation, in addition to this conversation, you need to become one of our Patreon folks and we would greatly appreciate it. But let's get into it, Chris. Grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. All right, Chris. So much has been going on with Twitter and Elon Musk. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost been so much that it's hard to even keep up with. Um, but at the center of this controversy, right, at the center of the controversy between Twitter and Elon Musk and his takeover of Twitter. The center of this is really supposed to be about the regulating of speech in social media. Right. Twitter, to some extent, had become so big that in a way it had become the de facto public square. When it came to conversations about politics and policy, the media, a lot of thought leaders were using Twitter for news. I use it primarily for news. They were using it to express ideas. They were using it to have these debates. It got so influential that even some campaigns, I think, in error, use Twitter to kind of judge what the issues they should focus on should be uh, or what their posture should be. Now, with all this influence and and all these thought leaders using it, I think there were leg- there became legitimate concerns about bias in how Twitter was handling certain messages. Um, as we discussed before, people were having their accounts suspended; they were having their accounts shut down for posting messages that, in many cases, ended up being true. So, for instance, when we're talking about the lab leak theory, which we've talked about over and over again, initially people were getting kicked off of Twitter for talking about the lab leak theory. Now it looks like the lab leak theory is probably it might be the most probable reason or probable uh, uh, cause of the covid outbreak. But people were really getting shut down for even talking about it. Right. Basically, people were being censored because they disagreed with what the establishment was saying at the time. And it's not that the establishment was getting the facts right or even necessarily getting the science right. But if people were disagreeing with what the establishment was saying on that time and not just on COVID, on a lot of different things, they were kind of getting shut down. Enters Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk, you know, obviously the founder of Tesla, SpaceX and so on, comes in, threatens to buy Twitter, then ends up being forced to buy Twitter. But he does it as this free speech absolutist, basically saying that I think. It doesn't really matter what people say. They need to be able to say it in the public square. So he's coming in and he's saying he's trying to make Twitter more fair because Twitter essentially has become corrupt based on this bias that they have. Now, he's taken over Twitter. He's had it for a few months now. In my humble opinion, I don't think that he succeeded at the mission that he that he set out to, you know, at least publicly what he said his mission was. I've really, Chris, been surprised by how hasty, how short-sighted, and how hypocritical some of his policies and some of his decisions have been since he's taken the head 
of Twitter. And they've been so bad that he's actually announced that he's going to step down. He did a Twitter poll. People said that he should step down. So he said he's actually going to step down as the CEO of Twitter. Okay. But anyway, what he's been doing recently is he's been releasing documents called Twitter files. He's been releasing this correspondence that that occurred before he was at Twitter that actually shows that there's been some there was some funny business at going on at Twitter and there were some things that needed to change in regard to how uh, they were handling certain messages. All right. Um, based on these Twitter files, I would say and we'll hear what Chris has to say, too. I would say there has been some disturbing revelations about what was going on at Twitter and how certain users were being treated. Apparently, one of the things that comes out of this is that the FBI and the CIA were actually trying to have a really heavy influence or an undue influence, you should say, on how Twitter was regulating content. And uh, journalist Matt Taibbi, if you don't follow him, follow him on Twitter. He kind of explained how all this stuff happened. Right. The CIA and the FBI were having regular meetings and regular communications in general with Twitter and other platforms about how to regulate this content. And according to The New York Post, uh, U.S. intelligence agencies, basically what they were doing is they were having Twitter analysts uh, do all these investigations into domestic Twitter accounts. Now, they were saying that these domestic Twitter accounts had nefarious foreign connections but the criteria to, that they judged that based on was kind of funny. And sometimes they ended up looking into people's phone records, you know, their IP addresses, all this other stuff, really without enough cause. Or, 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 or what I would at least say for reasons that would make people uncomfortable. Now, here's where it gets really shady, in my opinion. Behind the scenes, you have these intelligence agencies trying to use social media to shape news narratives relating to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and things like that. Now, regardless of where you stand on that particular war, Chris, we should all be able to agree that intelligence agencies shouldn't be trying to control or manipulate the free press. This isn't the first time that has happened, but that's not what you actually don't have a free press if that's what your uh, intelligence agencies or government agencies are doing, if they're effective in doing that. All right. But also the FBI also was pushing Twitter to place sites that were pointing out Hunter Biden's lucrative role on the board of a Ukrainian energy company under a cloud of official suspicion. That's in addition to trying to hide the Hunter Biden laptop store. OK. And at one point they paid Twitter. million in taxpayers' funds to do these investigations, to do this work. It was Twitter's policy that, yeah, if a government agency comes up to us and asks us to do some of this, these investigations will do it, but they have to pay for it. And so that's how they pay for it. You can imagine, Chris, that that can lead to some adverse incentives, some incentives that we would not want to, uh, that that should not exist between social social media and the government. Now, I will say this. I don't think it's all bad in regard to what these Twitter files have revealed about Twitter. There's some things, as I just mentioned, that we should be seriously concerned about. But I'll say this, Chris, to Twitter's credit, they didn't always go along with the FBI either. They did push back. And that's not easy to do. If you have a company, your company's there to make money or whatever. You have the FBI and the CIA saying, hey, I need you to do this. And then you don't you know, that's that's hard to say no to. That's not easy uh, to say no to. 
Plus, they were getting messages from FBI when they didn't do what the FBI wanted them to do, saying that we're disappointed with your compliance. That's hard to overlook for your average person who's just not trying to you're not trying to catch that smoke. Right. So I want to give them some credit for at least pushing back on some of that stuff. Now, to be clear, the focus of of all of this was misinformation and misinformation can be deadly. Misinformation is not something that we should just just dismiss. Right. Um, The other thing that I would say, Chris, regulating speech on social on a social media platform is necessary. And Elon Musk is finding that out himself. But it's certainly not easy. Right. How to regulate speech on social media isn't settled. It's an ongoing debate. It's in flux. And I haven't seen anyone strike the perfect balance when it comes to making sure you don't have too much misinformation or even just violent speech or other types of speech, while at the same time upholding the principle of free speech. Right. So I do want to extend Twitter some grace in those regards. Um, You're also, again, you're dealing with national security issues. You're dealing with federal agencies saying you should do it this way. You don't want to get that wrong because the consequences could be huge. So it wasn't an easy position that they were in. But certainly, I think they could have done better. And these Twitter files are showing us some things that, but for this transparency, we wouldn't know. And that certainly needed to change. What's your take on the Twitter files and the FBI and CIA's role in what was going on at Twitter before Musk got there? Yeah, I mean, I would first say that I think we still don't know all of what was going on. Because uh, the, the, while I'm glad for uh, the sort of Musk experiment at Twitter. Um, I don't think we have all the, uh, the facts. We don't know that we have all of the facts. Um, in yeah, fact, not. The, the thing that I'm, that makes me glad about the Musk experiment is that it, uh, it shows us that we actually can't depend on, uh, sort of, you know, wealthy individuals and corporations to regulate kind of social media uh, platforms and algorithms and all this stuff that we certainly don't have uh, a hold of right now, but we really need to get a hold of uh, in our society because of the role that these platforms play. Uh, and I think there needs to be uh, some some government involvement in making sure that that stuff is regulated the right way because it doesn't matter, you know, which, you know, sort of wealthy individual is at the helm or even small set of individuals are at the helm of uh, any particular company. This stuff is really hard and it needs to be uh, debated and regulated in a much more open fashion. But in the middle of all of this, like debate around free speech and regulating social media companies, which is uh, incredibly important in my view, um, you do see enough in the Twitter files that have been released to suggest that there was too much involvement from federal agencies in suppressing certain narratives. Um, You also, you know, you begin to pair that with the fact that uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, told Congress, right, that there uh, was... You know, there were federal agencies leaning on Facebook uh, at, at different at different points in time. So uh, whether you feel passionate about the Hunter Biden laptop or not, whether you feel like uh, that conversation impacted the uh, 2020 election at all, uh, I think that there is a, a real need for some uh, some real looking into 
what exactly these federal agencies uh, are doing uh, with taxpayer money, with taxpayer time. We see this little glimpse uh, into this, but this is this is one of those things that I think if Congress is going to be looking into stuff, uh, maybe Congress should be looking into this uh, because we. I, I think just on the whole, like we have to start to get some kind of a reset and some sort of way to begin to repair and restore some trust uh, in our institutions. And I think pulling all this stuff out into the light, some of it might be uh, hard to swallow, but I think it's it's the first step in, in sort of reinvigorating some public trust uh, in, in these institutions. Like we, we have to remind ourselves and dare I say, remind those institutions, uh, you know, the fourth estate, if you will, that like the 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 self-governing people of the United States, um, you know, have to have a lot of say in how government runs. Like because otherwise we start to, to lose too much of a handle on our institutions. Man, you made a really good point. It doesn't really matter what you think about the Biden laptop, Hunter Biden's laptop. It doesn't really matter what side you take. This isn't about taking sides. This really is about principles. And one of the problems that we have within our politics and why we can't look at anything ob- objectively and get th- and fix things is that we're more concerned about what side we're on and how it helps their narrative than about the principle. This is about the free speech principle. This is about transparency. It ain't about which side you want to win. And if you can never focus on the principle, you're always focusing on what side you're taking, then that's why we're in this situation that we're in right now. So you make a very good point about that. And what I would add to that, Chris, is this. We tend to get caught up in personalities really quickly. We tend to get caught up in personalities when there's a much bigger issue at hand, right? What I see happening is once certain influencers... Once certain influencers, where they'd be talking heads on a certain station or talking heads on Twitter or whatever, whether they be conservative or progressive, once they start to shape the narrative and once they start to make the narrative about a certain person, we just start talking about that. And even Christians will take these influencers, these secular influencers, and once they start making this issue or this principle about a person, we run off with it and we all we're thinking about is that person that particular person and we lose sight of the larger conversation. Here's what I mean. Too many people are just focused on Elon Musk right now. If we talk about what's going on with Twitter, if we talk about the conversation, even about um, how speech is regulated or how this content is regulated, some people, all they want to talk about is Elon Musk. Yes. Elon Musk is rich. Yes, from what I can tell, Elon Musk is arrogant, maybe even narcissistic. Uh, Elon Musk has has done some questionable, has some questionable business endeavors that I'm not uh, I have no interest in defending. I have no interest in defending his unhealthy, what looks like an unhealthy relationship with China. He's rich. He's smart. He's arrogant. He's intelligent. There's a lot of other good things we could say, too. But that's not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter here is the principle is, is about principles of free speech, principles of transparency. And if you're going around and you're only talking about the person and how much you don't like him, you're missing the point. And I said the same thing when it came to Joe Rogan. 
whether you agree with everything Joe Rogan was talking about in that whole Spotify back and forth and when they were trying to censor him was beside the point. Y'all focusing on the personality, you're missing the bigger principle. You're missing the heart of the matter. Don't focus on the people. You're going to have flawed people who may be doing something or representing something at a moment that needs to be brought to light, that needs to be questioned. But if we get too caught up on who it is and whether we like them or not and whether they said something I didn't like and whether I like how how they use their money, we're missing the whole point. I'll let you close this out, Chris. Yeah, I'll just say uh, a couple things. One, picking up on that theme of, you know, it doesn't matter about individuals. You also can't even allow your ideology uh, to to interfere with some of these basic principles of American democratic society and, and, and sort of uh, American life, uh, because you may agree with, uh, you know, the fourth estate, the agencies, whatever you want to call it. Like you may agree with them in this particular moment because, you know, you might be saying, Hey, well, they're targeting, you know, conservatives and, you know, racist and whatever. So, you know, I'm going to support them. But you got to understand this is the exact same apparatus that was used, you know, to target um, civil rights leaders and, you know, uh, uh, leftist organizers. So these tools can easily be turned against your side at any point. And so it's really important to to really defend the principle, um, regardless of where the violation is targeted in a particular moment, because it can it can turn on you uh, uh, just so quickly. And because I did mention congressional investigation, I feel like I should say um, that if the Republican Congress does decide to investigate this, uh, I think the the biggest mistake that the January sixth committee uh, made was to uh, kick the the Republican selected Republicans off the committee, right? If, if you think, if you think you're right, then you have to be able to force the other side to look at the mistakes, defend their errors uh, and in public or admit that they were wrong. Uh, and I think one of the, um, one of the ways you make an argument legitimate is to actually legitimately risk losing that argument by giving the other side, their their moment to make their their defense right. So if somebody wants to defend why the FBI and the CIA uh, was trying to uh, intervene with social media companies to suppress discussion of Hunter Biden's laptop, then let them do that. Let them do that in public. Let them do that on a congressional committee. Don't kick the other side out of the conversation. Uh, it will delegitimize in a certain way the whole exercise. And those are kind of just basic rules of civility, right? I mean, those those are, are rules of a healthy democracy. You can't have a healthy democracy if there's no cross-examination, no other opinions that have entered in, into the conversation. And I would add that when it comes to defending principles, because they could come back at you, if you only defend it when it happens to you, you have no credibility to defend it even then. And so that's why you always defend the principle, even if you disagree. And that's kind of what's wrong with ideologues, people who get too ideological, is you miss principles, you miss practical things. I don't think that's the case when it comes to proper Christian theology, though. I think proper Christian theology is different than ideology because it allows us to look at the principle and evaluate the principles and the situation and not say, well, I'm trying to get to this certain certain end. 
So I can't really look at this principle right now because my end is too is too important. So that's another a whole larger, different conversation, but certainly something for our uh, audience to think about. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast because we were just just having a conversation about the Twitter files and the principles behind free speech and, and why, you know, we shouldn't be just so focused on personalities. Now I want to talk about something that uh, affected a lot of people over the holiday uh, over the holidays uh, over Christmas break. Chris Southwest Airlines. Listen to this. Southwest Airlines canceled almost six thousand flights. Over 12,000 flights were canceled for American holiday travelers in general. Now, to be fair, some of this can be blamed on severe weather. If there's ice on the runway, if there's ice on certain parts of the plane, if visibility is messed up, we all understand that flights need to be canceled under those extreme circumstances. However, a significant portion of the cancellations in this instance were preventable, Chris. Not only were they preventable, many in many of the instances, much of this was forewarned. There were people saying, if things don't change, this is what's going to happen. Now, we know that when you're trying to travel and you get delayed or you get cancellations, that can be very, very inconvenient. And I'm talking about folks who may have to go see loved ones who are sick. I'm talking about folks who have been planning things and and saving their hard-earned money for years or months or whatever, and can't get to where they're trying to go through, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. Um, and so to know that this wasn't all caused by severe weather, that, Chris, some of this was caused by things like old technology, right, that could have been regulated better, uh, things like bad business practices from the airlines, but it wasn't corrected. Now, one thing everybody listening needs to know, when it comes to the airlines, airlines are very heavily regulated by the federal government. It's the federal government's prerogative. And part of the reason that it, it, it falls under the purview of the federal government is because it deals with interstate travel, right? Um, interstate travel uh, has a ma- major impact on the United States economy. It has, I mean, you know, obviously when it comes to, to airlines, this is something that's security issues, right? So this is something that the federal government deals with and the federal government handles. And people have been asking the U.S. Department of Transportation to hold the airlines accountable for these delays for a minute. An unacceptable amount of delays and cancellations have been going on all year. This didn't just start happening in uh, during uh, Thanksgiving and then into Christmas. This has been happening all year. And consumers have been outraged. But it hasn't only been the consumers. It's, and that should be enough, really. For people to be saying, hey, y'all need to do something. The consumer should be enough, but it hasn't even just been the consumers, Chris. All year, I'm talking about, I can show you letters uh, and correspondence from February on of this year where governors 
and attorney generals from all over the country have been asking Secretary Pete Buttigieg to hold airlines accountable for these delays, for these cancellations, and he has been hesitant to use his power to do so. Now, I won't say he did nothing. He has issued some directives here and there. But the general consensus, and I think it's a fair consensus, is that that has been nowhere near what was requested, nor what was necessary to avoid the debacle that we just went through last week. What he did seemed like, hey, I'm going to do something. I got to do something. Let me do something. But it it didn't go far enough, as we can see, to prevent what happened uh, last week. And let me be very clear, clear, Chris, this is not a partisan issue. On December 16th, after many of these folks were sending stuff to him all year, the attorney general from Arizona, Colorado, Iowa, Connecticut, New York, California, Illinois, Virgin Islands, over 40 in total, about 40 in total, attorney generals from all over asked Secretary Pete Buttigieg, to address the issue more thoroughly. And in this joint statement, in this joint letter, this is one of the things they said. Americans are justifiably frustrated that federal agencies charged with overseeing airline consumer protection are unable or unwilling to hold the airline industry accountable. Unable or unwilling. Now, most of this letter was gracious. It was like, thank you for what you've done, but it's not enough. Like, it wasn't just coming at him. It was trying to nicely say, hey, you need to do more. We appreciate you, but this isn't enough, and you've got to do more. And they've been voicing this opinion all, again, all year. They've been sending them stuff all year. Now, after this happens, Chris, now Buttigieg is talking about, yeah, I'm going to keep an eye on how the, uh, how, how the airlines respond. I'm, I'm going to hold them accountable now. It's too little too late, sir. You should have taken serious action long ago. And here's the question that I have to ask. Why didn't Buttigieg do more? What's holding him back from doing more? And I don't want to I want to say this as a possibility because I can't read the man's mind. But at the same time, I'm, I got to call a spade a spade. You and I both know that the position of secretary of transportation is a highly sought after position. After vice president, attorney, like it's one of the top positions that somebody would want, especially somebody who wants to run for higher office. Right. The reason that everybody wants to be the transportation secretary is really you get to travel all over the country and give states and localities money for projects that they really need. That means you get a lot of exposure. That means you can build up a lot of, um, you know, you 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 can build up a lot of uh good relationships based off that, right? You can build up some goodwill. It's a position that you would want to be in. So I understand why people who have political ambitions want to be in that position, but it's a serious position too. And whispers, people are filled like on both sides of the aisle. People are saying Buttigieg wanted to come into this as, as a stepping stone to get to the next level and run for president. He didn't want to do the job. He didn't want to do the hard work of telling these large corporations who have people who donate to campaigns, no, you need to do better. You need to do this. I'm going to make it uncomfortable for you. He didn't want to do that. In fact, I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the word of Nina Turner. Nina Turner uh, just ran uh, for Congress as a Democrat. 
in Ohio in the Cleveland area. This is what she had to say. Maybe if Pete Buttigieg had more had been more aggressive this past year with airlines for canceling service, Southwest Airlines would have been more cautious with their systems. They had old systems that were worn out that put people in a bad situation. Instead, Secretary Buttigieg decided to go easy on the airlines because he wanted to keep corporate donors happy. Is that the case? I'll let you be the judge. But it looks like it looks it just looks kind of fishy. You've got to do your job first and foremost. Chris, why don't you speak into these cancellations and the job that 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 uh, our transportation secretary has done in that regard? Yeah, or or not done. Right. So or not done. Uh, my my little brother was one of the uh, unfortunate Southwest travelers uh, this this weekend. We both fly Southwest. I thank God I wasn't flying anywhere Uh this particular holiday, uh, but certainly did have family out there. Uh, and I think Nina Turner is absolutely right uh, because we saw uh, the this trajectory. Uh, you look back and you see you have COVID, which uh, brings a big disruption uh, to air travel. Uh, part part of the uh, the multiple packages that Congress passed uh, to help get the country through COVID uh, and through that pandemic was uh, uh, a massive and special particular uh, uh, sort of bailout for the airlines. Uh, and then coming out of that, as people did begin to travel again, you started to see um, uh, you know, a lot of things. First, you saw uh, labor issues with airlines wanting to, uh, to lay off workers, even though they had received money uh, to lay off wor- to, to keep workers. Uh, Pete Buttigieg seemed to be asleep at the wheel um, on on that, that issue. Then you did start to see um, a lot of cancellations uh, and 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 ca- and and sort of delayed flights. And uh, you travel a lot, uh, uh, Justin. You know that there is a like there is a an obvious sort of fall off uh, in terms of the the airplane travel experience. Um, cancellations are more frequent. Delays are more frequent. Um, and you've heard the, the transportation secretary say at that time, you know, it was back in the summer when he said, you know, we are going to hold airlines accountable. We are going to pay uh, more attention. But he didn't do many of the things uh, that he could have done to be a little bit more serious uh, with the airlines. And so when you get to and some be, And to be clear, Chris, and some of these in some of these letters that he had been getting all year, they were telling him what he should should do. Specifically. They were saying, hey, please do this, this, this and this. And he decided not to do this and that. Right. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I want to be clear I mean, on that. So he's you know, he was asleep at the wheel for that. People should also know that transportation secretary uh, has a lot to do with uh, regulating uh, uh, trains and sort of commerce. Uh, so you have a transportation secretary who. While we were and still a little bit are uh, facing a lot of um, uh, uh, supply chain issues, very unengaged. I mean, for a long period of that time was on, uh, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? Paternity leave or or, or whatever. Um, you know, just very much not engaged uh, on, on that question, was nowhere uh, defending workers on uh, this latest uh, uh, potential rail strike. Uh, and so has has just been 
nowhere on this stuff. And you have to draw the line back to him because when you look at Southwest this weekend, you do have an organization that um, apparently has outdated technology. Uh, and everybody already knew that, which I would have to assume that this transportation secretary either did know or should have known because it seems like a lot of other people knew and were vocal about it. I uh, didn't do anything about it. Um, also, Southwest, uh, it, it appears, unlike other airlines ahead of the the storm and the, the weather problems, really multiple storms uh, across the country, other airlines were preemptively canceling flights. Southwest was slow to do that because they didn't want to um, sort of mess up their network schedule because that looks a little bit different. They don't they don't base their schedule around hubs. They literally just route flights destination to destination. And so they didn't want to preemptively um, cancel flights. So that was bad decision making, bad technology. Uh, and it, it's really frustrating to me because not only, you know, does it leave my actual personal family uh, in a lurch. Uh, it leaves workers in a lurch because I always think about when uh, when frontline workers have to take crap for bad corporate decisions. Um, that really frustrates me as, as somebody who, you know, uh, kind of likes to stick up for workers. Um, so they put their workers in a bad spot. They put their customers in a bad spot. Um, and shame on Southwest uh, for doing it. But it is I think a a symptom of a larger problem of having a transportation transportation secretary who is asleep at the wheel, and you know, a lot of times the job of the transportation secretary, while it is a very serious job, um, it it doesn't play as pivotal of a role um, in every administration in every moment in history as it has in this administration and at this time. Uh, with supply chains and travel and all but, that, but, was impacted by the pandemic. But wasn't that foreseeable though? At the time when Biden chose who his transportation secretary was going to see, going to be, it was foreseeable. It was foreseeable that there would be supply chain issues. That somebody who needed to be um, qualified to be in this position and know what's going on would be able to fix and be able to 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 deal with. Right. That 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 was foreseeable. I mean, somebody who knows what's going on with uh, the railroad, you know, uh, industry and all that stuff. It may have been foreseeable that there was going to be an issue here, and you needed somebody to deal with it in the right way. So, so I'm not saying that you were saying it that it wasn't, but I don't want to release Biden. You know, you giving people political jobs that do they know what they're doing? And this isn't something that just happens in the Biden administration. This is something that happened in the Trump administration and administration before that. We got to be very careful, but with who gets certain jobs. Because they actually got to do the work and they actually have to make decisions that impact people's lives. But go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I would just say, you know, and to your point about the fact that uh, these decisions impact people's lives. Um, the, the best way to make sure that bad decisions get made is to let folks make the decision who are not going to be impacted by the decision. Um, and Pete Buttigieg uh, I, I think it is noteworthy in this conversation that it is coming out now that he's been chartering private flights with taxpayer dollars, like up to 18 uh, flights. We don't know yet um, how much money was spent on these flights. Um, I, I do know that private charter flights are pretty expensive. Uh, we have had 
um, former uh, uh, transportation secretary. I think the uh, his immediate predecessor, Elaine Chao, uh, was was roundly criticized for taking uh, private flights. And and there was one uh, Trump administration official. I don't think it was a transportation person, but one Trump administration official that actually had to resign um, over taking charter flights because it is uh, there. There are regulations here that do require. Uh, these these federal officials only to take those charter flights if it's cheaper um, than than flying commercial, and I, I I think we should be looking intently into whether this was cheaper or just more convenient, because if it was the convenience factor, a lot of the inconvenience is stuff that has been caused by your inability or unwillingness to really get engaged with these airlines and. And, uh, and and sort of knock some heads and get people doing what they need to do. Yeah, because in in one in one aspect, you almost have a sort of negligence, right? You didn't, you weren't engaged. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. On another one, you have almost bad faith. Whereas you're hesitant to check these corporations because you don't want to get on their bad side. If that's the case, you should not be in that position. Period. If you hesitate one second to do what needs to be done for the people. Because you don't want to have a negative impact on the corporations who might support you later on. That's problematic. Now, we don't know that to be the case for sure, right? We're not in his head. But it certainly looks like that could be the case. And it's something that we need to consider. And that that, that needs to be addressed if and when, uh, you know, Buttigieg runs for president. Absolutely. Because I, mean, I, I, would, I would suggest that both bad faith and gross negligence are roundly disqualifying uh, sort of attributes in executive leaders. And this is a person who is a part of the executive uh, branch of government. He runs a very consequential department inside of that government. And we all know that he has aspirations to be the chief executive of the whole United States. Um, and if you are given to bad faith or negligence, um, to me, that, that's pretty disqualifying. Yeah. And, and let me say this, as always, if there's something about this issue, about Buttigieg in general that we have gotten wrong, let us know. We'll address it. If we if we say, look and say, you know what, we were wrong about that. We we agree with you. We'll address it on, on the podcast. I think I think we've been thorough in what we've looked up and it needs to be addressed, man. So, again, it's not a partisan issue. It ain't personal, but people suffer. People are suffering during this supply chain. And some of that was. He couldn't have prevented, right? But possibly could have been a little more engaged on it. People were hurt during these cancellations and delays, and people were hurt with this railroad, the the railroad uh, uh, dispute, and how that all that stuff went down. So uh, needs to be addressed. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Let me put a little scripture into this real quick. Um, Psalm 110 verse 7 says this. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. In other words, don't lie. Now, Chris, I heard that. I mean, just a very. I don't don't want to say it's a weird story, but a very. Just crazy story about Congressman elect George Santos. Now, Congressman elect George Santos just was elected to uh, Congress in New York. Uh, I want to say it was the Queens area. You know, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and he he was a Republican, so he he that was a, ch- a seat that went from Democrats to Republicans, and now we know that Republicans uh, control the House. He was part of that whole thing. The problem is. After the election was over, a New York Times journalist found out that he was pretty much lying about everything. Uh, he lied about going where he went to college. He said he went to Baruch College and he went to NYU. They had no records of it. He lied about being a descendant of the Holocaust, of a Holocaust survivor. It's looking like he even lied about being Jewish at all. He lied about working for Goldman Sachs. He lied about working for Citigroup. He lied about how much money he had. He lied about his businesses and nonprofits. Now, some of that we've seen before. Right. Um, And then he says, you know what? I I embellished. I I was you know, he gets caught red handed, takes a while to answer these basic questions. He said, look, I just embellish and it happens. And people start pointing the the things that Biden has said and others have said. This is a more extreme case, though, I, I I would say this is a very extreme case. Chris, what are your thoughts on George Santos? And, and let me step back and say this a little bit before I even pass it over. It's not to, it's not a surprise to either of us that somebody might embellish their resume when they're running for office. Not saying it's it's good, but it happens. Some folks take it further than they should. I would say that in some instances, President Biden has taken it further than he should with some of his embellishment, which I think some were just outright lies. Right. Embellishment being, you know, a euphemism. Um, so we've seen this before. But again, I think this is is a little more extreme. What do you think about this particular case and just the culture of campaigns and how people embellish things about themselves, embellish their what resumes? Yeah, I man, I think it's it's uh, it's certainly symptomatic of a broader uh, sort of like culture within politics. Like you said, like if you watch enough Joe Biden, you will find that he grew up everywhere, right, um, and with everybody. I, I do think, like you said, for a person to be running 
for the very first time uh, for public office, introducing themselves uh, to uh, the world and, and and not just like saying like, hey, you know, I grew up with, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of different ethnic groups or something like that, like literally like making up whole jobs, like saying you work somewhere where you didn't work is not an embellishment. Like that's a lie. Um, and it's, it's kind of crazy to me, uh, to look at the story. Like as, as I was reading about it, I couldn't help, uh, thinking about, um, uh, Eddie Murphy's, uh, uh, distinguished gentleman, um, you know, vote for Jeff Johnson, the name, you know, uh, because it's, it's, it's a little bizarre to me that he was able to get away with this kind of a scheme. Uh, I, I ran for Congress and we, I had 19 other people in the primary that I ran in and I had my team, which is a very small, uh, campaign for, uh, for a congressional campaign. And we still were able to look into at least like two years prior of kind of like, uh, opposition, uh, research. So, like, the people who were running against this dude, I'm like... What was the Democratic Party doing? What How doing? does this come out after the campaign? Like, this is partially what campaigns are for, to right. get all this stuff out in the open. And that's why when people talk about, well, we don't want it to be negative. I don't like negative campaigning. But when it comes to revealing lies, right. that's what campaigns are for. What what were they doing? Yeah, I don't know. They, I, I, it seems like to me that a a small amount of, like, just basic internet research, like, you wouldn't have had to, like, hire a super serious oppo firm right like just looking at like hey this dude says he worked at x firm but he doesn't have any facebook friends or linkedin connections <laughs> with people at that firm that's odd you know what i'm saying like these things are uh a little bit basic i mean i, I don't want to go too far into laying the blame at the op- opponent's feet. I just think that that's really bizarre. Um, I also think it's bizarre that a person would present themselves uh, for Congress in this way. Um, but then there are opportunities now to see, you know, what happens. I mean, as a uh, congressperson elect, when he's seated in Congress, he is subject um, to ethics, uh, uh, you know, investigations and you know, it, it, it would do so much good to me for my soul if the the Republican Congress, which we uh, know will be involved in a lot of investigation of things that conservatives uh, want to investigate. Many of them, I would say, probably need to be investigated. It would be nice if, if in the midst of those investigations, there's also uh, ethics investigation uh, into this guy. Um, that would that would tell like in a in an open and honest way if what he did was egregious enough to not seat him in the Congress. Um, and I'm not I'm not here saying that it was, but I do think that an ethics inquiry could be thorough and make a, a honest and public decision uh, about whether that would happen. And that's something that would take a lot of courage because it's a very slim. Uh, majority that Republicans have, you're going to have a, um, you know, you have uh, McCarthy who's still working to secure his speakership. Um, and so it, it would be a heck of a thing to do, but, you know, it might be a, a step in the right direction to uh, restoring our uh, great democracy.
It's something to consider uh, because this does seem to be fraud. And there's a false statements act. Some people are saying that he he could get caught up with the false statements act. It's a federal act. Um, but, you know, in law school, you learn the difference between puffery and fraud. Like puffery is I'm the best candidate. You could even might even say I'm the most educated candidate. Right. It, it's something you could say. And it's, you know, might not exactly be true, but it's just you're just puffing yourself up a little bit. Right. Then you have fraud which is like a material misrepresentation, you know, a very more serious misrepresentation. And this seems to be a very serious misrepresentation. And it should be something you would hope wouldn't even have to be handled by the law, but would be handled by the part by his peers, right? And say, hey, this 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 cannot go forward. So we'll, we'll see how it ends up. Just praying for this this man uh, that he felt like he had to, because when you when you make some of the misrepresentations that he did, it's almost a sign of something deeper, right? There's something deeper uh, within you that you feel like you need to go that far and make just obvious lie that people could clearly just look into what you're doing and say, no, that's that's clearly not true. Um, so prayers to him, man, uh, because um, everybody is redeemable. Um, we He was right. We all make mistakes. But for him to say this was just an embellishment uh, is, is not really addressing the true issue. So... <sighs> That's a tough one, man, but we'll keep our eyes on that to see what happens. As of right now, he will be seated in January, so um, it, it's something to keep your eye on. Again, uh, thanks for listening to the you know for the to the Church Politics Podcast. Don't forget that we are now putting these episodes on YouTube. Um, we're trying to get folks over to YouTube to watch them there. I know you can still listen to them, but check them out on YouTube as well. Um, and we're going to get those up, you know, um, um, more promptly. Uh, so we're getting all that tightened up going into the new year. One thing that I do want to mention is we, 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 as you guys know, we do have our invisible institution newsletter that's coming out. We're going to push it back a little bit, a couple months, but for a very good reason. And that's going to be an, a, a whole different announcement, but we have very good reason that we're going to push this newsletter back a little bit. Um, and I, you guys are still going to get the chance to enjoy it, enjoy some new content coming from the and campaign very soon. But we've had some even bigger things pop up that I think uh, you guys are going to be excited about as well. So, as always, thank you for joining us. Um, and camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the wor- world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ until next next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh Lord, This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.